Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. The reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Thank you. Thanks, Teresa. We've seen Teresa at the beach a lot. What a place to read the scripture from. It's great, isn't it? Let me pray. Father, it's so good to be together again with with, uh, my brothers and sisters. Lord, I know that we have been together through your spirit in our living rooms, Uh, But it's good to be together face-to-face again to see each other. It's not quite normal. Maybe it's never going to go back to the way it was, but, Lord, I pray that you would help us to embrace this new normal and to actually see how you are working in this time. Lord, I know that you've been at work by your Holy Spirit in people's lives. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would open up our hearts to what you have to say to us through the Word so that we might be responsive to what you're saying, that this word don't, won't just wash over us and we'll just go out and go, okay, whatever. But actually, you would actually challenge us and draw us closer to yourself and, 
and help us to know what it is that you want us to do with this message today. And I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, these days, um, there's a, uh, there seems to be a fair amount of creative license uh, when it comes to writing job titles. Sometimes a job title tells very little about what a person actually does. Uh, maybe some people like the vagueness of these titles so that they can do them whatever they want. Um, it seems that some people sort of come up with a job title or that uh, without any reference whatsoever to the job description or the role that they're going to, to do in their company or organisation. Recently I found a few job titles that people have which appear a little bit hazy in, uh, in telling us what people actually do and I just want to share with you a few of my, few of my favourites. So this is uh, my, one of my favourites, this is uh, his job title is the Director of Sandbags. Now I'm not sure if Ray wrote this title for himself or whether it was given to him but it seems from the image on the TV that uh, there wasn't just a job for Ray. This is a real calling. Someone was really impressed by, <clears throat> by Luke Howard's work. Could someone get me a glass of water, please? <clears throat> and um, they were so impressed with his work that they put up a plaque in his honour that includes his job title, which is Namer of Clouds. <clears throat> James Dunstan appeared on the BBC News with a job title Space Lawyer. Now you might laugh, but uh, you won't be laughing when the aliens land uh, because Ray will be the only one standing there defending us from the onslaught and I can guarantee that he'll be charging by the nanosecond. <clears throat> one of my uh, favourites, uh, again, is the job title for Lee Sandbrook. He refers to himself as Head of Elephants. Apparently, no tusk is too big for Lee. Stan Coven, he's a bread scientist. I'm sure he's raking in the dough. And this is one of my uh, favourites as well, Alan Moore. And his is a multitasking job title. He's a writer, wizard, mall Santa and Rasputin impersonator. Thank you. And finally, Jackson Galaxy. I mean, really, is, is that even a real name? He has the most layback job title of them all, but equally ambiguous, and he refers to himself as Cat Behaviour Consultant. I mean, really, seriously? I hope one of those is not one of your job titles and I haven't offended you this morning. I think uh, job titles are really, though, only helpful if they convey succinctly to people, other than themselves, something about what they do. Otherwise, left to their own imagination, people will come up with their own theories of what a person uh, with that job title does. In the Bible, uh, Jesus has many different job titles or role titles, some of which 
that he accepts himself, some of which he rejects, some of which are, are just given to him by people who don't know who he is. And so the, the, in the Bible, you'll, you'll hear Jesus' job titles. Uh, he's called the Messiah. He's called the Son of God. He's called Counselor, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Bilzebub, which is, was given to him by some religious leaders, which means Chief Demon. Uh, King of the Jews, um, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Teacher, Rabbi, Prophet, Good Man, etc. And there's, and there's others that you'll find in the Bible. Before I became a follower of Jesus, I would have assigned the job title to Jesus as religious teacher. And, uh, and I would have assumed, and I assumed at that time, that the core work that, uh, that he had was to teach people good morals and God's laws. But when I became a Christian, uh, a follower of Jesus, my understanding of Jesus changed. And I found other titles to be better descriptors of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so today you might, uh, you might have a particular job title or role title in your mind that you have when you think of Jesus, which in turn then is connected to the role that you think that Jesus plays in your life but also in the world today. It's common today though, isn't it, for people to assign their own, uh, assign their own job title to Jesus or their own role description to him seems to be a common element of our generation. And some people would use that title, religious teacher, as I did, which means they, they think that he came to just teach people what's acceptable and unacceptable to God and, and, and maybe to give people good advice on how they can get to heaven. Perhaps how, that's how you see Jesus today. Other people uh, assigned to Jesus the title prophet, and by this they mean, well, he's not, I don't believe that he's God, uh, but only someone who warns people and calls people back to, to God's way, to show them the path. For other people, uh, they have the title for Jesus as being a good man uh, who did many good things, but who died prematurely because he, he stood up against powerful forces. And so from this title, you presume that his role is to be a good example to you and how to live. But for others people, and maybe there's people here today watching online or here in the, con in the congregation, who don't have a job title for Jesus at all. You know his name because you've heard your parents talk about him. You've heard your some friends talk about him. Uh, you know that he means something to them, but you don't have a job title for him and you don't really know the role or the job that he came to do. Today, though, it's important that we all understand Jesus' role and the job description that God planned for him and the role that he accepted for himself. And, and it's important because by understanding this, you can know Jesus as he wants to be known. And you can respond to what he's done so that you can actually experience the salvation uh, and the transformation that he was sent to bring each person. Therefore, I want to spend a few minutes now exploring the job description that, uh, that Jesus told his disciples that he had and what the implications of his work are 
for every one of us today. Now you might think, oh, maybe I'm a, a bit odd that I don't have a job description in my head for Jesus. Well, let me tell you, the good news is that um, you're not the first person or you're not the only people in the world to, to not have an idea exactly what Jesus did or even have a, a you've, you, or have even come up with their own job description for Jesus. Uh, this was something that the disciples of Jesus did as well and they spent a lot of time with him over many years. Jesus' job description is something that Jesus really wanted or really required the disciples to understand and to get on board with so that they could fully experience what God had sent him to do and so that they could actually be true disciples in the world today. In fact, the disciples had struggled to understand who Jesus is and what he had come to do since they first began to follow him. And if you've been following the series over the last uh, few months, then you would have noticed that in the sermons that it's the disciples largely who've got no idea what's going on. It's, but it's not as if they're blank pages. None of us are blank pages. Uh, they had an inkling of who Jesus was um, and they did have a view of him, but up until this point in, in Mark's story, they weren't, uh, they weren't willing or weren't able to share who they thought he was openly. So in today's reading that Teresa read to us, um, we heard the disciples were actually by the Sea of Galilee at a place called Bethsaida and they headed away from the sea where Jesus had just healed a blind man. And then they trek away from the, from the, the Sea of Galilee and they go up north to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And this was a main town in the northern region of Israel and it was ruled by Philip, one of Herod's sons. And it was a really significant place because Herod had actually built a temple there. There was an ancient temple there dedicated to Pan, but he'd built another temple around it which was actually dedicated to the worship of Caesar, the ruler of the whole Roman Empire. And it, so people went there and, and they were, were giving worship and honour to, to this man, this Caesar, this person who ruled the area. And so Jesus, as he's walking with his disciples up to this place, they're probably wondering why they're going there. They're probably saying, he's, he's sort of saying to them, he's saying then, well, this is a really fitting backdrop for me to actually ask my disciples some questions about who they think that I am. What are their views of him? So he begins his first question, and he says, who do the people say, who do the people say that I am? And uh, this is a really disarming question because um, he's asking them what other people think. It's easy to answer that sometimes, isn't it? To, rather than answer what you think yourself. You know, because you can do that quite casually. Oh, they think this or they think that. So this is what Jesus did. He said, what do the, who do the people say that I am? And so the disciples then give, uh, give the three stock standard answers of the day. And we've already heard some of these before. Some thought that he was John the Baptist. Uh, who had come back to life. Others thought that he was a prophet Elijah, another prophet who did powerful things uh, and miracles, who had come back to life, while others thought he was still another prophet still from long ago. Now, all of those three people uh, mentioned 
They had significant ministries and they did some amazing things, but none of them had the job description or the role that led to people, the forgiveness of people's sins or that would enable people to be transformed or enable them to experience lasting redemption in their lives. The, the three guesses that people had, they were all people uh, who pointed forward to someone else, someone else more significant who would come and do more significant things. Jesus' first question really was to soften the disciples up. It was to disarm them. It was to get them thinking themselves. And so it's Jesus' second question to them that's the one that he really wants to hear the answer to from their hearts. And this question is, who do you say that I am? It's also a question that Jesus, I think, is asking, well, I know he's asking each of us to consider today as well. And it's a, it's a question that deserves thought. And it's a question that actually deserves a thorough answer for, from everyone. Peter, the self-appointed uh, spokesperson of the disciples, answered really quickly. He said, you are the Messiah. Now, you might think, finally. You know, we've been going, this is chapter 8 of Mark, and we've gone through this now, and, and, uh, and we've heard their questions. Oh, who is this man who calms the wind? And the waves. We've heard all those. We've, we've, ex we've experienced with the disciples uh, the miracles and the incidents and the teachings that they've all experienced. And so Peter and the, the disciples, we think, finally they've got the answer right. They, they, they finally got it correct. They now know who Jesus is. Hurrah, we're thinking. Surprisingly, though, Jesus doesn't give him a pat on the back and say, well done. It's taken you a while, but you finally got there. Instead, what does he do? He says, don't mention this to anyone. This is a strange thing to say, isn't it? After asking them who, he thinks they, who, who they think he is. And then don't mention it to anyone. And so this word Messiah, you know, we, we sort of hear it, but it's, a, it's not actually an English word, it's a Hebrew word. And it means the anointed one. And so in the Old Testament, all the kings were anointed by a prophet or someone to show that they'd been chosen, that they'd been recognised to be a particular leader at that particular time. And so the general job description that people had in their minds for a Messiah at that time was quite set, it was quite established. And so what they believed was that the Messiah would be someone, one, who was a descendant of King David, He'd also be someone who would bring justice and peace to Israel, someone who would restore Israel's fortunes, someone who would uh, kick out the Romans from Israel, someone who would re-establish those borders that Israel once had that were seen to be shrinking, someone who would clean the temple, and someone who would reign as king in Jerusalem over Israel. And so the problem that Peter and the disciples had is that though they had the right job title for Jesus, Messiah, they had the wrong job description attached to that title. You see, they wanted Jesus to fulfil the popular uh, role description of what a Messiah would be. And so they thought that Jesus was going to come and he was going to use physical force, he was going to you know, 
kick some sort of Roman butt, so to speak, get them out of the get them out of Israel, and that he would uh, he would establish his rule over Israel by force and be king. And they were going to be at his right and his left hand. They were going to be the sort of new power brokers in the in the kingdom. Although the job title Messiah is a good one and it's an accurate one, it's actually not the title that Jesus chooses to use for himself. In fact, he uh, he doesn't refer to himself that much, as, or doesn't refer to himself that much as Messiah. And the reason for this is because it's a loaded term, and uh, it, it for people because they had their own thoughts and assumptions, as I just mentioned, about what this Messiah would do. And so for Jesus, it's really, really important, it's crucial that the disciples understand his role as he sees it. If they're going to benefit from his work and if they're also going to play a role in his kingdom. And the same goes for you and I as well. We need to understand Jesus' role as he sees it, as part of God's divine plan. We can't come up with our own job description for Jesus. Jesus referred to himself using the title Son of Man instead of Messiah. And he he deliberately uses this because he doesn't want the disciples thinking that, oh, Jesus agrees with us. This is what he thinks. He's going to be our new sort of of earthly king. And so he uses this term Son of Man because it's more subtle. And it literally means a human or a a Son of Man. It means a person. But it also has another meaning in Scripture. And this is why Jesus is able to use it, because it's subtle, but it has a deeper meaning as well. And so in using this term Son of Man, he's not denying that he's the king. But what he's doing is he's expanding and clarifying what sort of king he's going to be. And so you'll find in the book of Daniel in in chapter 7, Uh, this Son of Man figure is actually mentioned. And you can turn to that later on and have a look at it. In fact, I've got a passage there from it now. Um, And so this Son of Man figure is actually someone um, who is given authority and kingly power by God, who who doesn't just um, bring a better day to Israel, this one people, this one nation in the world, but someone who brings a better day to all people and whose rule lasts forever and ever and whose kingdom eventually spreads throughout the whole world and impacts everyone. This is a different sort of king. And so what we find is the disciples weren't actually upset with Jesus because he calls himself the son of man. In fact, they probably don't even hear him say that. They've probably still got their eyes and their ears fixed on what a Messiah is. It's actually Jesus' job description they don't like. It's his own explanation of what would happen to him that they actually found appalling because it went against every expectation they had about what a Messiah would be and what a Messiah would do. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He's sort of heard the rumblings of this in the background. And so he, what did he do? Then he, he, Mark tells us that he began to teach then what his job description is. And he says that the Son of Man will be rejected by religious leaders. He will suffer and die and be raised to life again. 
Peter thinks, hey, someone's got to tell Jesus he's got it wrong. Hey, guys, we can't have, we can't have Jesus going on like this. This is going to get us nowhere. So he calls Jesus aside to have a bit of a pep talk with him. Come on, Jesus. Let me, uh, let me tell you how it's really going to be. Because, you know, you, you can't go preaching that message. It's, it's not a winner. So Peter calls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He wasn't upset that Jesus uh, had said he would, would suffer. Suffering was tolerated as long as it was on the route to power and glory. What Peter found intolerable was, it, was that Jesus said that his job description would be that he'd be rejected by the Jewish leaders and he'd be killed both of which are really scandalous and incompatible in his mind to what a Messiah and who a Messiah would be. Peter's not misunderstanding Jesus here. He's understanding him perfectly, but he's rejecting that job description. He understood Jesus say that the way forward would be through lowliness, humiliation, rather than through worldly power and glory. And so what Peter would have heard Jesus say would be like, what, like an AFL football coach telling his team that the only way to win the competition this year is if we allow the opposition to kick 10 goals and we kick none, and by the coach allowing himself to be savaged and humiliated by the press, rejected by the fans, and booted out of his coaching job. Does that make sense? Do you think you're going to win the premiership that way? It didn't make sense to Peter, and it doesn't, if we're honest, make sense to us either, humanly speaking. Because for us, a saviour figure, it doesn't make sense that they be rejected by people that they're trying to save and suffer and die at their hands. The reason for the different understandings of Jesus' job description is that Peter and the disciples, they didn't have in mind the same outcome the same end goal that God does. They didn't grasp the end goal of what God's doing. The job description that God had planned for, has planned for Jesus is a role that leads to a much more substantial outcome than merely just kicking out the Romans from Israel for a few years or even from getting prosperity or from peace for a short period of time. The, the disciples' description for the Messiah was was way too small, way too limited, because it really only benefited Israel and it didn't last that long. Because again, this Messiah would probably die in their minds at some stage and then they would be in trouble again. The idea of a Messiah that would suffer made no sense to Peter or the disciples and it made no sense to any Jew at that time because the Messiah was meant to come and defeat evil and injustice and make everything right again. And they couldn't comprehend how this could be achieved by him suffering and dying. And perhaps you also don't comprehend this morning how that can actually impact you as well and affect your life. But we need to listen carefully to Jesus' words here because Jesus didn't just say, I'll suffer and die. 
He says, I must suffer and die. And so by using the word must, Jesus is insisting that that everything in his job description needs to happen in order for him to accomplish his task. It's not just that Jesus has come to die. It's Jesus must die in order to make all things new again and in order to transform our lives and in order for him to be able to deal with the junk in our lives and to secure for us forgiveness from sin and peace with God. Tim Keller says that forgiveness always involves suffering. Forgiveness always costs someone something. When somebody does something wrong, a debt is established. And this debt needs to be paid by someone for it to be resolved. So think about it this way. Suppose you come to our house uh, after lunch and uh, for lunch. And then after lunch, we get really sort of happy and sort of excited. And so we start dancing in the living room and you sort of dancing away and you spin out of control. Whoa! And you knock over my favourite lamp that I bought in Africa. There it is. That cost me $75. It's irreplaceable because it was handmade. Now, it smashes on the ground. Either of two things can happen. One is that I make you pay the cost of the lamp by asking you to give me $75. Or I can say to you, I forgive you. That's okay. But in both those scenarios, someone actually suffers for breaking the lamp. Either you suffer by giving me $75 or I suffer by losing our precious lamp that lit up our living room. Either you pay or I pay. Even if I forgive you for smashing my lamp, it still costs me to do that. And this is what forgiveness is. It always entails suffering. If this is the case, then it shouldn't come as any surprise to us that that God's plan to reconcile all things to himself and and to forgive us our sins also involves suffering. Since you and I can't pay the cost of our own sinfulness, it means that God has to bear the cost himself. And God has done this through Jesus who suffered and died on our behalf for our forgiveness and to deal with all the junk in our lives. This, my friends, is the good news, isn't it? That's the good news. You can't pay the cost, but God pays the cost himself. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples then, by sharing his job description with them is this, he's saying, I am the true king, but I'm not like any king that you've ever imagined before. I'm the king who must suffer and I must die so that you can live. There's no other way for God to achieve what he wants to do. Any any of their, their job descriptions that they have in their minds for Jesus are way too limited in scope. 
None of them are able to bring forgiveness required or the salvation that's needed, that they needed or that we need. And therefore Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling us this morning, that is what I'm here to do. And you need to get on board with this. You need to get on board with where I'm going and what I'm doing. Otherwise, you're going to miss the bus. Friends, whatever job title or job description that you've assigned to Jesus that doesn't involve him suffering or dying and rising to life, again, is not a job description that's going to impact your life in the way that you need. Therefore, we need to actually accept Jesus' role description as the only one that will bring about our forgiveness, our transformation and the salvation that we need. And Jesus invites you today to accept who he is and what he's done for you. But guess what? Jesus doesn't just end there, does he? This is the crunch bit. He says, since I'm the king who suffers and dies, if you want to be followers of mine, then then you also must die yourselves. Wow, yikes. What's he talking about here? What he means is, is that we also need to accept the role description that Jesus has for his followers. And if we're to be true disciples in the world today, then we need to accept that. Our job description is to take up our cross and follow him. And what Jesus means by this is that we are to die to, to self-determination. It's a call to die to total self-control of your life and actually to place your life in God's hands. It's a call to die to pushing forward with your own agenda for Jesus and a call to stop seeking to use Jesus to fulfil your own purposes, your own dreams and your own ambitions, but instead to surrender yourself to him and to seek to serve him. In Mark 9.1, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God coming with power. That's what he said to those people who were with him. And some people have interpreted this, that uh, some of those people who are standing with Jesus, uh, they wouldn't die before Jesus returned again. But this is not what Jesus meant. What he meant is that um, those first believers, the disciples, the followers who were with him, that they would actually see the kingdom of God come in power, but not not in power as the world traditionally thinks of power. The kingdom of God started in weakness. It started uh, with the death of Jesus on the cross. That's how it would start. And then the disciples would see it grow and change, but not not by military force or through might or through, through political power. Instead, they witnessed Jesus' resurrection and they were filled with the Holy Spirit who gave them courage and power to serve, power to love, power to actually suffer, power to even die to their own wills so that other people could experience Jesus and other people could experience the transforming grace that Jesus brings. Because of this, the church exploded numerically because other people saw the sacrificing love 
and experienced the service of Christ's followers who came to them in meekness and humility as Jesus came. They witnessed the kingdom of God coming in great power, so great that it's still changing the world in which we live today. Friends, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus today, then the only way is to accept the job description that Jesus has for himself. We can't write another job description for him that suits us or our desires. And the reason for this is that no other job description will lead to your transformation or your salvation. And without your salvation and your transformation, others won't have the opportunity to hear about Jesus or encounter him themselves. But Jesus is asking you today the same question that he asked the disciples 2,000 years ago. He's asking you, who do you say that I am? And if he's just a prophet, just a teacher, or just a wise man, or just a good man to you, then you won't be able to receive and accept what he's done to set you free and to bring you peace with God and to bring you peace with others and to even bring you peace with yourself who you are wrestling with. By trying to make yourself acceptable to God, by trying to make yourself acceptable to other people, by trying to live up to some standards that are actually impossible to keep. God's way of redemption and salvation, friends, is through weakness. It's through Jesus' suffering and death that you'll rise and Jesus invites you to follow him and become true disciples of his today. To follow him and to be a true disciple of Jesus, then you must also embrace the job description that he also gives you of being his suffering servants and embrace weakness and reliance upon God and not power in order to see the kingdom of God grow in you and impact the world and the people around you. C.S. Lewis sums it up like this. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favourite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit every fibre of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Friends, it's been a tough year. But Jesus, I know, has still been at work in us, in our community, drawing each of us closer to him. And so I want to encourage you today, if you recognise that you have your, you've had your own agenda for Jesus, if you've written your own job description for him that keeps him at arm's length and doesn't allow you uh, or doesn't allow him to come into every area of your life for him to be Lord, 
then today I want to encourage you to reconsider who he is and what he has done and accept him as your king who suffers and dies and rises to life so that you can have life and life to the full. Let's pray together. I'm going to invite uh, Isabel to come in for the piano. Great and loving God, we could never have imagined a plan like you that you have made. It doesn't make sense to us how we can gain life, eternal forgiveness, peace, peace with ourselves, with others, with you, the reconciliation of all things, the renewal of the earth. Those things don't make sense to us that they can be achieved through the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross. But then when we rely on our own wisdom, look at the mess we make and look at the mess we find ourselves in and the peace we lack and the hope we lack in this life. And so, Lord, I want to pray that you would help us to accept the role description for Jesus that you've written. Help us to embrace this. Help us to embrace Jesus so that we can encounter a life in the full now and life forevermore. Amen.